Turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10. As we look at the entire chapter of Luke chapter 15, we see that it's really just a chapter full of parables. There's three parables that Jesus tells in this chapter. The first is the parable of the lost sheep. And then there's the parable of the lost silver. And then there's the parable of the lost son. The root meaning of each of these parables is is really the same thing. God desires the salvation of sinners. That's what we see echoed in all three of these parables. God desires the salvation of sinners. These parables are not referring to backslidden Christians. These parables are referring to the lost, those who are without Christ. And these parables are not about the sinner's response to God. We need to note that, that these parables are not about the sinner's response to God. They are about God's response to the sinner. So let's look at these first two parables this morning in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. And all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends, his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse 8, Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, There's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your example in the person of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the parables that communicate to us your desire for sinners to be saved. I pray this morning that you would speak through me in spite of me and that you would give us ears to hear your still small voice, minds to understand, hearts to believe, and wills to obey for your glory and your name's sake. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Verse 1 and 2 set up these parables. We don't need to miss these two verses because they really set the context for why Jesus told this chapter of parables. In verse 1, all the tax collectors and the sinners 
were coming near to Him to listen to Him. The tax collectors and sinners. Now, this doesn't sound big news to us because many of us, if not most of us, grew up in Sunday school. Many of us, if not most of us, have heard of tax collectors like Zacchaeus, that wee little man, that wee little man was he, who climbed up in that sycamore tree because the Lord he wanted to see, right? But we get the wrong idea of, of how horrible, literally how horrible tax collectors were. Tax collectors were not only people that stole from the poor, tax collectors were people who were traitors to their country, and not only traitors to their country, but they stole from the poor in order to give to the enemy occupying armies who abused their own people, their own Jewish people. So tax collectors were like turncoats. They were like two-faced. They were thieves. They were traitors. They, they turned their back on their own countrymen to fund the abuse of their countrymen. They weren't liked by anybody. These were horrible people. These were sinners. And these people are coming to Jesus to listen to him. And in verse 2, both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And we know the Pharisees are the bad guys, right? These are the ones who always are opposed to Jesus. But we need to recognize that these are the religious people of the day. These are the first Baptist people of the day. They're the ones who dress right. They're the ones who smell right. They're the ones who bring their Bible. They're the ones who know their Bible. They are the ones who, who, are, who are kind of better than, spiritually speaking, than those around them in their own eyes. So it's as if these, these people, these religious people, these people who have it all together are now looking at Jesus going, how dare you hang around with those kind of folks? How dare you spend your time teaching these kind of people? How dare you invest your energy in these kinds of of people when you have people like us and Jesus looks at these Pharisees these religious folk who who feel like they've got it all together who are grumbling and mumbling about him spending his time with these tax collectors these hated tax collectors and despised sinners and he tells them three parables two of which we're going to see this morning and in these parables we can see God's heart, God's desire for lost people, despised people, sinful people, wretched people, hated people to be saved. People that we might look down at, people that we might not feel are worthy, people that we might feel are lost cause. We see three things about salvation in these parables. First of all, salvation is the work of God. Salvation is the work of God. Listen to verses 3 through 6. He told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. In this parable, we see very clearly that salvation is ultimately God's work. What does the sheep do in this parable? What does the sheep do? The sheep gets lost. That's what the sheep does. And a sheep separated from the flock and left to wander by itself in the wilderness will 
die. Sheep are not meant to be independent creatures. Sheep do not have sense enough to be independent creatures. They have to have the flock. They have to have the shepherd. So a sheep that has been lost is not just a sheep. Well, he might. it's like a stray cat. You know, he may come home a week or so from now. He'll be fine. No, a sheep that gets separated from the flock will not come home. But he will wander off and he will die. Even if he's surrounded with food. Even if he's surrounded with water. It's only a matter of time before... He's going to succumb to the stress of being alone. Or a wolf's going to pick him off. Some predator will pick him off. This is a good time just to pause for a moment. Because even though this parable is not talking about saved people, this parable is talking not about sheep in the sense that we think of sheep. This parable is talking about lost people. This is a good time just to mention the sad way that so many have seemed to treat gathering together for worship as optional, AC. AC, you may not know what AC is. We have BC, AD, and now we have AC after COVID. (laughs) And I want you to hear me. I know there are people, there are people who genuinely cannot gather together to worship. They are They are compromised in some shape, form, or fashion. But we also have to admit that there's been quite a few, quite a number, who have used AC after COVID as an an excuse to just slip away, to just watch online church. Maybe, maybe, survey and stats say that that's not necessarily accurate, that everybody's just home right now watching And I'm not naive enough to think that watching Facebook Live means you're engaged with what's going on here. You're scrolling silly gifs, maybe listening in the background. So we've we've used this opportunity to to separate from the gathering. We think, well, the sermon, the performance, we want to watch this, we want to hear this, we want to learn something and take notes like we're in some kind of Zoom class and we miss the need for gathering. We miss the need for fellowship. We miss the need to worship together. There was an, an old, old pastor who noticed one of the parishioners just never showed up for church anymore, and he decided he would go and make a visit on this person and find out why they've not been in church forever. And he walks into this man's house, and he has a fire going. You may have read the story, heard the story. He has a fire going. There's lots of coals in the bottom of the fireplace. The pastor sits down. He doesn't say a word. He just reaches into the fire with a pair of tongs, takes one coal out, and sets it on the hearth to the side. And they watch the coals in the fireplace continue to burn red. And this one long coal begins to cool down and go out. The pastor gets up and leaves the house, never saying a word. But the message had been communicated. You will not burn long alone. Now some of you, some of you, you may be watching online, you may be watching after, you may be here today. How difficult, difficult, difficult things have been. And you have not put together that part of the reason it's difficult, difficult, difficult is because you have not been part of the body. So that's free of charge. All that was just extra. The point is, If you have a legitimate reason, yes, but if you don't, don't use something as an excuse 
to separate from the important thing of being together as a flock. If a sheep gets separated from the flock, it's going to face serious stress. And it's only going to be a matter of time before the sheep will be devoured by predators or die due to exposure to the elements. The sheep that is separated from the flock is as good as dead. And all it did was get lost. Now this is a lost sheep, not a backslidden sheep. This is a lost sheep. And we all, at some point or another, have been or are lost sheep. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Just like that lost sheep, a lost person is as good as dead. Just like the lost sheep, a lost person is as good as dead. And as a matter of fact, that's exactly how the Bible describes us in Ephesians chapter 2. Listen to what the Bible says. You were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We, like lost sheep, have gone astray. We, like lost sheep, are as good as dead. We have no hope. What can a dead person do? We're not spiritually sick. We are spiritually dead. And what can a dead person do? A dead person can't do anything but rot and decay and turn back to dust. So there's nothing we can do to correct the problem God has with us. We have gone astray. We may be surrounded by lush food. We may be surrounded by flowing streams and water, but we are sitting ducks for predators. We are lost. We are hopeless. We are helpless to find our way home. We are dead. But, but, verse 4, God, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, by grace, you have been saved. God does the work. When Lazarus was in that tomb, Jesus said, roll the stone away. The Bible says, he said, Lazarus, come forth. And what did Lazarus do? He got up, he came out, right? Now, when did Lazarus, when did Lazarus, Resurrect. Was it when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth? We say, yes, Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. He woke up and he came out. Dead people can't hear. Dead people can't hear. God made him alive. And then he said, Lazarus, come forth. And then he came forth. It's the same way with us. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. We can't hear. God makes us alive. And by grace, he saves us. Not of works. Not of our good works. I walked an aisle. I prayed the prayer. I got baptized. I joined the church. I grew up in a Christian home. I made some wise decisions. I chose to follow Jesus. I, I, I. And when we start salvation with the word I, we have completely missed salvation. Because it's not I, it's God. 
It's God. And that's the point Jesus is making here. God does the work. Tax collector, not too big of a job. Sinner, not too big of a job. Pharisee, you're not even too much of a job. Because God makes alive and saves by grace. The shepherd leaves the 99. He leaves the 99. And he goes in search of the lost sheep. So the shepherd takes his flock to open pasture, to a safe place, puts them together, and he goes in search of his lost sheep. And that's exactly what the Lord did. In Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The good shepherd came to seek and to save the lost. In Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 11 and 12, Ezekiel said, Thus says the Lord God, the Lord God said this, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they've been scattered on a day of cloud and thick darkness. In Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 15 and 16, he says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Not only does the shepherd go in search of the sheep, not only does the shepherd find the sheep, but he picks up the sheep and he carries it. That's what Jesus said in Luke chapter 15. He leaves the 99 in the open pasture and he goes and he searches and he finds the lost sheep and he picks it up and he carries it back. He doesn't even leave it to the sheep to travel home in his own power. He lifts it up and he carries it. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Isaiah 46 and verse 4. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and I will save. Do you know? Do you notice? The sheep does absolutely nothing in this parable. The entire saving work is attributed to the shepherd. The entire saving work is attributed to the shepherd who goes, who seeks, who finds, who carries, and who rejoices. Salvation is God's work. Salvation is not only the work of God, but we see in verses 8 and 9, the second parable, that salvation is the heart of God. Salvation is the heart of God. Verse 8, what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I've lost. We see the heart of God in this parable. This woman so desired the lost silver, that she thoroughly, consistently, and with great perseverance sought it until she found it. She shines a light on every corner of the room. She sweeps the entire house. She leaves nothing unturned. And when she comes to the end of her search in the parable, she can say, I have searched everywhere. She seeks until she finds. She has done all that she can do. Salvation is God's heart. First Timothy chapter 2. Verses 3 and 4 says very clearly, This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 
God so desires that people be saved that He has given us every opportunity to respond. Think about the ways that God has revealed Himself to us and has given us opportunities to respond to His goodness and His grace. He has given us the witness of the heavens. All you need to do is turn away from the television or the phone screen long enough to go outside and to look up at the stars, to look up at the moon, to see the clouds rolling by. To see the brightness and the warmth, feel the warmth of the sun. And you will know without a shadow of a doubt, if you're honest with yourself and you're honest with God, the heavens do declare the glory of God. And the firmament shows His handiwork. He's given us the witness of the heavens. He's given us the witness of our conscience. There's a moral law in each of us that tells us that regardless of our religious beliefs, some things are just wrong. Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 says, When Gentiles or pagans who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts. Their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. If there were no such moral law or conscience within us, the world would literally be in more chaos than it is now, if that's imaginable. Who set these universal rules in the heart of mankind? Who put them there? That's a good question for an atheist. He's given us the witness of creation. Look around at the grass. Look around at the diversity of the flowers. Look around at the diversity of the trees and the mountains and the hills and the valleys and the streams and the rivers and the beauty and the majesty and the glory of creation. Look around at the diversity of the animal kingdom. Look up at the diversity of the birds that fly in the heavens. Look down at the diversity in the ocean and the ocean creatures. Just Look around. That eye that you're looking around with, think about this, that eye that you are looking around with comes with automatic aiming, automatic focusing, and automatic maintenance. It blinks on its own, and at night it restores itself. On top of that, you put that eye in a dark room, and it can increase its ability to see 100,000 times. Just look at creation. Look in the mirror. He's given us the witness of the heavens. He's given us the witness of our conscience, the witness of, our, of creation, and He's given us the witness of His Word. This book, this book was written over a period of 1,500 years by over 40 different people. It was written on three separate continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe, in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. And yet this book, in spite of its diversity, tells one story of how God, God chose to redeem Himself, a sinful people, for Himself. He has given us His Word. And finally, and and most importantly of all, He's given us the witness of Himself. He didn't just say, look at the heavens. Look at creation. Look at your conscience. Look at the Scriptures. 
He gave us the witness of Himself. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-8 through 8 says, Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus Christ existed from eternity past. He is the exact image and representation of God the Father. God is spirit. He doesn't have a body like a man. But if he were to pass in front of a mirror, the reflection he would cast would be the reflection of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the exact image and the exact representation of the Father. And he did not count that place a thing to be grasped or a thing to be held onto. But the Bible says he made himself nothing. A little innocent, helpless baby. How much more nothing can you get? A baby can't feed himself. A baby can't do anything. A baby can't defend itself. It just cries. And, and here's God in the flesh who makes himself literally the lowest of the low and infant, a baby. And he took the form of a servant, a human being, and he was born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. To the point of death, Jesus Christ came to this earth and showed us what it looks like to live the Christian life. He showed us what it looks like to live a holy, righteous, perfect life. He came to this earth and He took on humanity and He was obedient in everything, never sinning, never failing, never stepping outside of the Father's will for one second. And He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He went to the cross, and there on the cross, He took upon Himself our sin, our iniquity, our transgressions. And God the Father poured out His judgment, His wrath upon our sin in Jesus on the cross until Jesus said, It is finished. Paid in full, buried in a borrowed tomb. Rose again on Sunday morning, as God the Father said, I approve and I accept of this sacrifice. It is sufficient. It's enough. Listen, He has given us the witness of Himself. This is all the evidence that we need that salvation is God's heart. He has turned on the light. He has swept the room. He is seeking you out. He wants you to be saved. What more can He do? I want you to look at this scripture with me. And this kind of blew my mind when I first saw it. But I want you to think about this scripture with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. Listen to what we read in scripture. You want to see God's heart for you this morning? God's heart for the salvation of you if you are not right with God this morning? If you're far from God this morning, the salvation, the heart God has for the salvation of those who are outside of these walls, the lowest of the low, the greatest sinners, the most wretched people. This is how much God's heart is for salvation. It says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Now, who wrote 2 Corinthians? If you have been around very much, your first answer is going to be what? Paul. That's half true. Because... Paul wrote it, but he had a helper. Now, what are you thinking, you church people? Who's the helper? The host said the Holy Spirit. Somebody did good. The Holy Spirit. That's partially true, too. He had another helper. His name was Timothy. At the beginning, it says, I, Paul, and Timothy. Are, we're writing this letter to you. So we have a kind of a, a trilogy here, a, tr a trinity here writing this letter. We've got Paul, yes. We've got Timothy, 
Yes, and behind them both, inspiring them, we have the Holy Spirit. So when the Bible says we are ambassadors for Christ, it's Paul and Timothy inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us. Now who is this God? This is God the Father. God the Father is making an appeal through us, through Paul, through Timothy, inspired by the Holy Spirit. We beg you on behalf of who? Christ. We, Paul, Timothy, the Holy Spirit, on behalf of Christ, we beg you to what? Be reconciled. Be reconciled. Be made right with God. Now notice this, this, this is amazing that here in one verse of Scripture, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 20, we have this word, Paul, Timothy, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are begging. That's what the Bible says, begging, imploring you here this morning, be reconciled to God. That's how much He desires you to be saved. Salvation is a work of God. Salvation is the heart of God. He sweeps the room. He turns the light on you right now this morning. He's shined the light on you. You feel like He's put the light on you. Preacher keeps looking at me. I'm not looking at any of you. All sees lights. Preacher keeps looking at me though. Lights on. Floors being swept. It's because He wants you to be saved. Thirdly, salvation is not only the work and heart of God, but salvation is the joy of God. Remember the reason he told these parables? Verses 1 and 2, the tax collectors, the sinners, coming near to listen to him. But the Pharisees and the scribes, they're grumbling and mumbling about it. They were grumbling because the tax collectors and the sinners, the less important folks, the less dignified folks, the real sinner people were coming to Christ. And not only that, Jesus is allowing them to get close to him. They shudder at the thought. And this upset the religious people. So he told these parables. And he not only tells these parables, listen, salvation is my work. Salvation is my heart. But on top of that, it's my joy. This is my joy. Look at verse 7. When that shepherd finds the sheep, he rejoices. And Jesus applies it in verse 7 by saying, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. One person this morning, one person this morning, turn from your sin and put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ and it'll bring more joy to heaven than over 99 people who know their hymn numbers, their Bible verses, how to take notes, how to dress, and how to act. Now, we're thankful for you, 99. God's thankful for you, 99. But God rejoices when one person steps out of darkness into His marvelous light. Verse 10, this lady sweeps the house. She finds her coin. She throws a party. Verse 10, Jesus applies it and says, In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. 
Notice here that Jesus doesn't speak of the joy of the angels. This isn't the angels rejoicing. The angels aren't throwing a party. It's joy in the presence of the angels. It's the joy of God himself in the presence of the angels. Rejoicing over the fact that someone, someone has come to him. Does it not seem a little weird? Here's a guy who's got 99 sheep. One strays away. He finds the one, carries it back, kills another one, cooks it, and throws a party. It's kind of like you could have just let that one go and skipped the party, right? Save the money. Seems a bit exaggerated. Here's a lady who's got ten silver coins. She, she turns her house upside down, finds one of them, spends it to throw a big party. It just seems a little bit out of balance to me. But again, I didn't tell the stories. Jesus did. And I think Jesus is trying to make a point. You know what sounds exaggerated to us? That God would throw a party for one sinner. Now, I mean, if you've got a Billy Graham crusade and hundreds come forward, then that's the reason for a party. You know, the, the NFL football player, the Major League Baseball player, the, the Hollywood actor, the singer, when they come to Jesus, that's the reason for a party right there. But you know, the, the lowest of the low, the unknown, the, that per, the poor person who can't really drop a big check in the place, that's, you know, not really party material, a bit exaggerated. Think about this. The omnipresent, always present, all-knowing. Knowing the past, the present, the future, and all the possibilities. The sovereign, unchanging, eternal, everlasting, almighty, righteous, holy, and just God who created all things and sustains all things by the word of His power, would rejoice over one depraved, wicked, ungodly sinner who has broken His commandments and rejected His grace time and time again. That that God would celebrate that sinner is far more exaggerated than a party over a lamb or a party over a coin. That should blow our minds. And yet, this is what the Bible says. The Bible says that if you are that lost sheep this morning, the good shepherd is here and he's coming after you. If you're that lost silver this morning, he's shining a light on every corner of your heart He's sweeping every corner of your floor. Not because He wants to point His finger at you. Not because He wants to give you a good tongue lashing. But because He wants to celebrate the fact that you have come out of darkness and into His marvelous light. You've come out from under the power of Satan and have brought, been brought to the power of God. You have been brought from your sin 
And you have been given forgiveness of sins. And you are promised an, in, an inheritance among all those who have been sanctified by faith in Him. He is looking for you, lost sheep. He is searching for you, lost silver. Because He wants to celebrate over you this morning. He's here. He's searching. He's sweeping the room right now, shining His light on you right now. Here's the question. Will you believe His gospel message? Will you embrace it? Will you turn from your sin, your own way, your own self-righteousness? And will you turn to God through faith in what Christ did for you on the cross? And will you follow Him from this day forward? That's our hope for you. That's our prayer for you. Listen, not only is Paul and Timothy and the Holy Spirit and God the Father and Jesus Christ begging you and imploring you, but so am I. And so are other people in this room. Not only begging you, but we're going to pray for you right now. Would you bow with me? Would you just pray for any... If you know Christ, you know that you have been redeemed, you have been born again, you are close to the Lord, would you just pray right now for those in this room who may be struggling, who may see themselves as that lost sheep, who may see themselves as that lost silver, who see themselves as that one who needs to be found this morning. Would you just pray for those people? And if you're that person, here's what I want to do. I want to pray for you. If you're that person, I want you to pray, to call upon the name of the Lord, to turn from your sin, to put your faith and your trust in Him. And as soon as this time is over, I want you to grab me or Andy or Tom or Brad or Michael or someone you know, someone you trust, and just say, I, I want to follow Jesus. I'm that lost sheep. I'm that lost coin, and I want to follow Jesus this morning. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that you love the lost. You love the tax collectors. You love the sinners. You love the Gentiles. We thank you that you have done everything that needs to be done. You've checked every box for us. You have paid the penalty for our sin. You have conquered death. You have conquered hell. You have conquered Satan. You've conquered the grave. And now you're searching and you're finding and you're picking up and you're bringing home that lost sheep. I pray for that one. pray that you would grant them repentance, that you would grant them faith this morning, that you would make them alive and save them by your grace. God, I pray that you would find that lost soul this morning, you would shine your light upon their heart, that you would sweep and you would search until you find them. And you would bring them to yourself. We pray that there would be celebration in heaven today over one lost sinner. God, we pray that you would give them the courage to find someone before they leave this place, to not walk out of those doors without telling someone 
they need you. Speak to us, Lord. Work in hearts. We'll praise you for it. We thank you for it and give you the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen.